everybody. Welcome to As It Stands, a podcast about politics, policy, and what's going on in the world brought to you by The Daily Beacon and your host, me, Hanson Sale. To start off today's show, I'd like to take a moment to encourage you to stay home when possible. Our leaders say that we're all in this together, and they're right, but we're not in the same boat. So as you contemplate leaving your home, even when you don't have to, I hope you will remember that those most vulnerable to COVID-19 are also at a much higher risk, largely through no fault of their own. Having something taken away from you isn't sacrifice, a friend once told me. Sacrifice is intentional. And this moment, unlike any other in history, demands our sacrifice. Because our daily pleasantries The things that we enjoyed in normal day-to-day life can now come at the cost of others' freedom. So then in a weird way, the American dream then hinges upon our willingness to use our own freedom to enhance the freedom of others, to be a beacon of light when darkness seems to have overwhelmed our horizon. No life is dispensable, not those of the elderly population or those living with underlying health conditions. We have a moral responsibility to do all that we can to protect those at-risk populations and to the best of our ability, whether it be through personal behaviors and actions as well as public policy. And that's how I see it. Joining me today to talk more about coronavirus and how American universities, who are a huge part of this conversation, are responding to the pandemic is former Tennessee gubernatorial candidate and current University of Tennessee system president, Randy Boyd. Randy has been a huge part of the Tennessee and Knoxville community for a very long time. He's the founder of Radio Systems Corporation, which started as a local corporation and is now a global corporation. He's the owner of Boyd Sports, um, the parent company of the Tennessee Smokies, as well as TN Achieves. He was instrumental in Governor Bill Haslam's Drive to 55 initiative, as well as the implementation of Tennessee Promise. And at that time, he served as the commissioner of Tennessee Department of Economic and Community Development, where he focused extensively on the Tennessee economy and economic mobility. Randy's perspective is an important one. The type of perspective we should be listening to in times of crisis, which is why I'm thrilled to bring it to you today. So let's get started. Hello, Randy. Welcome to the show, and thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Hanson. I'm excited to be a part of the the program and looking forward to uh, having a great conversation. Yeah, me as well. Me as well. So I'm going to start with the first thing that's on everyone's mind, coronavirus, um, sort of capturing the global consciousness right now. Um, So to start, I'm curious about what the initial conversations were like at the UT system level about um, crafting a response to the coronavirus. Um, You know, those had to have started before we really knew the exact extent to which um, the virus would affect our day-to-day life. So what did those early conversations look like? 
Well, I'm really proud of my entire team and how well everybody collaborated and communicated throughout all of this. I think uh, a takeaway that we all know that you do in a, in a crisis, but a takeaway that we'll have going forward is how important communication is and when, when you have a situation like this. So I go back, I think it was March 10th, but that was a Monday. I had to double check the calendar. I remember having a conversation mm-hmm. with UTK Knoxville, uh, UTK's uh, uh, Chancellor Donnie Plowman uh, uh, that morning about the fact that it didn't look like we had to act immediately, but that we need to be monitoring the situation very closely. Things change, as everyone knows, within mm-hmm. Tuesday night, we're completely changing our point of view and thinking we're going to need to do something soon. And on Wednesday morning, we were having group conference calls with all the chancellors at the Health Science Center in Memphis, in Knoxville, in Martin, and in Chattanooga. One of our complicating factors were that everybody's on a different academic calendar. So UT mm-hmm. was in the middle of spring break, getting ready to come back that Friday. UT Knoxville was going to leave on Friday. UT Martin just got back. But we all realized that we have students going all across the world during spring break. There was no way that we had the ability to test every one of them when they came back. And so we decided to uh, extend spring break for 14 days, allowing students to take their classes online. Uh, and we made that announcement on Wednesday afternoon, um, I think it was March 12th, after a whole day's worth of conversations back and forth, getting more data. And we realized it was a momentous de- a decision because when we made this call, all the other public universities across the state would be following our lead. So mm-hmm. we were decision for us. We're making a decision for the state and something that the university had never done before. Um, But it felt like the right thing to do. And looking back, it was the right thing to do. And by the following Monday, uh, we also realized that we weren't going to be able to open the rest of the the spring semester. And so we had to say that we were not having more in-person classes the rest of the semester. And we delayed the the ceremony uh, or the Mm -hmm. didn't cancel graduation. I always get a little annoyed when somebody says, Oh, and you had to cancel graduation. No, everybody's still graduating. Yeah. We're graduating on time. We're just not doing the ceremony until later. But the ceremony is a big part of graduation. And that we got a lot of angst from a lot of the students, rightly so, about having to, to uh, delay that. But uh, we feel com- good about the decisions we made. Most important thing we need to do is make sure that we keep our students and our faculty and our staff safe and healthy. And then very close second to that is completing our mission. And I've been so proud of to see everybody, students, faculty, staff, everybody across the UT family stepping up and finding ways to make sure we deliver those missions with, uh, while, while maintaining our, our distance and keeping people safe. Yeah, two, I mean, two points to that as well. I mean, I was initially very impressed with the response, particularly that it was system-wide. I thought that was a very great decision. And, and also at the point which that decision was made, um, I guess it was extended until April 5th or so. Yeah. Um, and the data, we, it wasn't clear whether we needed to just go ahead and cancel the spring semester um, for, for in-person classes. So I was, it, it was a very measured response, in my opinion. And um, I would like to um, send some praise to the chancellor, particularly at UT Knoxville. Donnie Plowman has been absolutely incredible with her communication to the student body. Um, it, it's very proud of my university in that regard. Um, so moving forward, do you think that a pandemic like this will change the function of the university in any fundamental way? I mean, what, is, what exactly is the role that the university should play when it comes to supporting the local and Tennessee community? Yeah, I, think that, I think this will transform the University of Tennessee 
across all of our campuses in uh, very fundamental ways. There's a lot of things that we've thought about doing um, at the staff level, at the faculty level, the student level, that uh, we uh, were on the, in the process of considering but would have probably taken years. From the student level, uh, we want to do more online classes. We've been talking about providing more bottle or online opportunities for some of those bottleneck classes uh, and so that we could release a little bit of the, the uh, challenges some students have in getting certain classes. And yet, we're moving very methodically. Overnight, this forced us to change uh, how, how we deliver programs. And a lot of students and a lot of faculty are finding that they can do things that they couldn't have done otherwise. So it's not finding a, a, a subpar way of doing uh, programming and offering classes, but actually finding ways in which we could do them better. You probably saw the post that Dondi did of uh, Peyton Manning uh, joining one of the, one mm -hmm. of the classes. But think about the possibilities across all your classes when you're doing a Zoom and some expert from anywhere around the world could join your class for 10 minutes or 15 minutes. That's a function that we would never be able to do in person. So it's going to open up some better possibilities to transform our university in a better and uh, better ways. The way we work, 90% uh, of all the university uh, staff are now working from home. And I actually have a town mm -hmm. home, uh, later today with all the staff to check in and see how they're doing. But uh, we just got a, did a survey asking them how they're adapting to their new situation. The majority of them actually are very, very positive. And they're finding that they can get be more productive working from home. They can do meetings uh, and maybe more efficiently than they could before. So I think it's also not only going to change uh, how we teach uh, and how we learn, but also how we work. Yeah, I mean, it, it's been a relatively not easy, but good transition thus far, I believe, to Zoom um, in particular, especially for students and faculty. Um, but to sort of jump off of that point, do you, what it, I mean, where do you feel like we can do a better job as a university as far as interacting with the state and let, leveraging our research capabilities? Um, which is also a huge component of, of all of this. Well, through this whole process, I think we build an even closer relationship with the state. We've always had a great relationship with the state, but they get even more so. The state reached out to us to say, you've got some great uh, leadership at the Health Science Center in Memphis uh, on the medical side. We're going to, they needed to create surge hospitals in Nashville, Knoxville, uh, Memphis, and Chattanooga. They wanted us to lead three of the four of those. Uh, and we were in a position to do that. We were in a position to step up. We've done a whole range of other things as well. Uh, the state needed uh, somebody to print 3D mat or using 3D printers to print uh, PPEs for uh, uh, our medical professionals. UT Knoxville, UT Martin, uh, and UT uh, Health Science Center all had a whole range of 3D printers. We've done thousands of uh, PPEs for, for our healthcare workers. Uh, we stepped up and are doing uh, actual testing in Memphis as well, dry, drive through tests. Mm -hmm. We've also researchers working on uh, possible uh, antibodies that will be able to help uh, stem the, 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 this virus in the future. So all across the board, there's so many ways in which the university has stepped up to, uh, to make a difference. And we've been promoting that to the, to the state since I've been in this role, that you know, our, we have three, three functions. One is to educate, two is to discover through our research, and three is to serve. And we can put all three of those together to serve our state in, in new and more innovative ways. And that's, that's one of the things we intend to do. 
For sure, this definitely presents an opportunity for there to be more collaboration um, between the actual state administration and, and this sort of research capacity um, that the university has. Um, so to move on from that, um, another piece of this, I think that little off topic, but um, I want to talk about the UT promise as it relates to the university and coronavirus. Um, you know, this is a game changer for intergenerational mobility, for breaking some of these chains of poverty, particular for low-income students. Um, so do you foresee that the UT Promise will have an even greater impact given the dawn of coronavirus and, and sort of the economic hardship that we're seeing as a result? Well, that's a very perceptive answer and, and absolutely it will. You know, we're looking at enrollment uh, for all of our campuses and it's gonna be a challenging year. A lot of families are gonna be struggling because of the financial crisis that we're also uh, in the midst of at this point. And so a lot of students are gonna be uh, challenged to find ways to be able to afford college because of the UT Promise, more students will be able to afford uh, coming to any one of our UT campuses. You know, the purpose behind the UT Promise initially was to make us more accessible. We are the land-grant university, and by such, the land-grant university were created back in 1862 by Abraham Lincoln under the Morrell Act to be able to provide a ladder up to the working class and the middle class. And we want to live up to that mission, and the UT Promise was a way that we could do that. Any family that makes under $50,000 in the state of Tennessee, and that's over half the population because the median age is, or median income is 48,000. So over half the population in Tennessee, as long as they can earn the right academically to come to Knoxville or Chattanooga or Memphis or Martin, then they can come free with tuition and fees. We're gonna be maxing them up with mentors too. You don't wanna forget my ABCs, always be closing mm -hmm. and uh, make a shout out to anybody that's out there that is interested in being a mentor. They can go to the UT Promise website and sign up one of the most important parts about this program is we're going to be providing each one of these students with a mentor to make sure that they're successful. It's not enough just to get them into college. We've got to make sure they graduate and having a mentor is going to be really important. Yeah, building the social capital is a huge part of, of breaking those chains of poverty and, and kind of the inherent things that are holding others back. Um, so to play off that, you know, the UT Promise sort of mimics um, the Tennessee Promise and Tennessee Reconnect in some ways. Um, so I'm curious as to how you feel that fits into the broader conversation about increasing access to education in the US. I mean, I sort of view this issue more as an investment. You know, economically speaking, the US can't afford not to educate our workforce and, and otherwise we'll be wasting human capital and, and there's a huge skills gap. So how do you feel like the UT Promise, is it a model that, will, that you think will be expanded across the country? How does it fit into the national conversation? Yeah, so I, so I can speak to Tennessee and then hope that the other states will follow suit like they tried to do or are doing with the Tennessee Promise. So back in 2013, I think you mentioned this in the introduction, that was a special advisor for higher education to Governor Haslam. Together we created something called the Drive to 55. And what that meant was, we we're gonna take our population from 32% with post-secondary attainment to 55% by the year 2025. And you would ask why 55%? Because according to all the studies that we can see, by the year 2025, the workforce that was gonna demand uh, a workforce, or the employers were gonna demand a workforce that had at least 55% of the population was something beyond 
high school. So it was an economic imperative. If we were gonna be able to fill the jobs of the future, we had to prepare our population to have that education. So we started off with the Tennessee Promise for technical and community college. And we've had that now for uh, six years. And it's been a game changer. We have the highest college growing rate in the country, primarily because of that one factor. It's been a big, a big jump for us, but it only covered two years. And a lot of the students, in fact, over 60% of the students say their goal was to go to a community college for two years and then transfer to a four-year mm-hmm. Unfortunately, only 19% actually do that. So what happened to that other 40%? I think the economic realities uh, uh, didn't allow them to be able to go ahead and transfer. With UT Promise, it fits in perfectly with that overall drive to 55. For those students that wanted to go to a community college first and then transfer, they can now afford to do it. But then there are a lot of students that were academically qualified to come to a UT Knoxville in the first place. They just didn't feel like they could afford it. The families didn't feel like they could. It'll allow them to come straight to UT as well. So I think it's gonna be a huge part of our, our state's ability to accomplish the drive to 55. Other states are looking at what the state of Tennessee is doing and have been copying to some degree other things that we've, other programs we've had uh, created. And I think they'll be uh, looking at UT Promise and trying to duplicate that as well. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's been very, seems like it's been very successful and, and particularly in this moment feels all the more important. Um, it was important before, but it's even more important now. Um, so one last question, just as it pertains to coronavirus and the university in particular, um, classes have already moved online for the summer term. Um, so what kind of contingency planning is already in the process and what are you willing to say about the conversations that are going on right now um, across the UT system about looking forward towards the fall semester? Well, we're working out every single scenario. I, I, could, I will say this, my personal belief, because uh, I'm a born optimist and so I'll always have a very optimistic view. Is that we will good trade. Yeah, good student, our, our students back on campus this fall and we've got to prepare for what that looks like. We want to put different precautions in place to make sure that we can keep our students safe uh, when they come back on campus. And so there's a, there's the scenario that we're working through on that res- in that respect. And we're also also uh, planning in case I turn out to be wrong to have a plan in case the students don't get to come back in the fall and working through what that looks like both for the students and financially. And it would be a, a very significant hit to all universities not to have students back uh, in the fall. Um, but we we'd be remiss if we weren't planning for those. So we're working on strategies to make sure that we can we can still manage to do complete our mission uh, which regardless of which way uh, we go but I'm hopeful that we'll be having students back in the fall um, it'll be a little different we're going to probably work on some uh, new ways of mm-hmm. distancing we'll be probably not shaking hands like we did we may be wearing some uh, very cool designer um, uh, <laughs> mask. I'm actually ordering one already uh, but uh, uh, so I think there'll be certain things that will be different but I think I'm, I'm hopeful. Yeah, I'm hopeful as well. Um, so to move on a little bit, staying on the coronavirus theme, moving away a little bit from the university side, um, your background is incredibly diverse from the private sector to the public sector and now in an educational leadership capacity, um, you have a perspective that few can offer with regard to those differences. Um, and so a couple of questions on that. First, we have this debate all the time in politics about whether we should or shouldn't run government like a business. Um, 
And so having been in both worlds, do you think that that conversation is a helpful one? Or do you feel like it misses the point to an extent? Um, how do you feel that plays yeah, in? I don't think it's that clear or bifurcated. It's not like a business has a unique set and government or higher education has a unique set. I think there's certain things that are similar and certain things that are different. Here's one thing that's similar. I think any organization, whether it's a nonprofit, government, business, higher education, needs to have these four things. One, you need to have a mission that's aspiring and inspiring, something that rallies that everyone together, that everybody works hard to achieve. And a great mission lives between the probable and the impossible. The probable is if you wake up every day and do your job, you'll achieve it. It's a mission, but it's not very exciting. Um, you can have one that's impossible. It's big and bold, but nobody believes it, so they really won't come to work to achieve it. A great mission lives somewhere in between, something that people can get excited about, but know that they're going to have to come up with some new innovative ways to, to reach it. And they're going to have to work beyond, harder and, and do more things than they could have otherwise, we would have otherwise done. You need to have a strategy to get there. And that's usually the, probably the most overrated part of the whole, of the four things. Strategy just needs to be simple and executable. You need to surround yourself with great people and you need to have a set of values that keeps them all in place. Those four things I've carried with me every place I've gone. And I think from an organizational point of view, whether it's government or business, uh, those things are the same. Now, the one thing that's very different from business to government is the level of influence and persuasion that you need to use to get things done. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Scale of one to 10, I would say on a, in a business, it would be a, with the 10 being the hardest and the one being the lowest. Well, I, haven't been in the, I haven't served in the military, but one might understand, if you're uh, in the middle of a battle, um, the level, level of persuasion you need is a one. You're, you're in charge. You tell everybody, we've got to do this now, and there's not a lot of discussion. You just go Absolutely. do it. Your, your life is on the line. In a business, I put it as a three. It's important that everybody believes in what you're trying to do, and they, they, they come on board. But at the same time, in a business, you can say, if somebody doesn't believe in your vision, doesn't want to go where you want to go, you can simply say, you know, I don't think my company's really a good fit for you. You need to go someplace else. If you're working in government, I put it at about a five or a six. Really, all you need to have is 51% of the population to support you to pass a policy. Uh, but it's very different in that um, you have to persuade those people to do it. They all have their own. And secondly, you're, you're in this together whether, they want, whether you want to be or not. You can't go to somebody and say, look, you don't really buy my vision of this drive to 55. I think you'd be a better fit in Kentucky. We're stuck with each other. Diversity, uh, mm -hmm. it's even greater because we have so many stakeholders and they're all important. Um, we have all of our employees that uh, we need to take care of, all of our faculty and our staff. We have the students and their families that have a say. We have every taxpayer in the state of Tennessee, 6.6 .6 million of them, that believe rightly that they have a say. And so to get something done takes much stronger uh, and more persuasion than you would in another organization. And for different stakeholders, the outcomes are, it's hard to balance that specifically with regard to government. Um, I see that's sort of where the main difference, um, in my opinion, is, I mean, you know, as in your role with a university or in a governmental role, your responsibility is to consider everyone um, and not your group anymore. So, you know, two people that theoretically, you know, might be in conflict, your responsibility is to protect and, and look out for both of them. Um, and that does powerfully change how you operate um, sort of fundamentally. 
But one of the, one of the key values that I've always promoted is trying to find win-win solutions. And if you really think about the long term, uh, we're all in this together. We all want the same things. The people of, the t of Tennessee want a university that produces great future workers and great future citizens. They want a university that does research that can change the world and change lives within the state. They want um, a university that serves through extension offices and through the other programs that we offer, make sure that we're making a difference today uh, in the, for the people of the state of Tennessee. And all those things provide a, a richer, better environment for our students, for our faculty, for our staff as well. So I think we have much more in common and much more alignment than most people think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So to stay on this topic of sort of the public versus private sector um, distinction, my guest last week, um, UT professor and former White House economist Marianne Wanamaker, um, sort of commented about this point, um, pointing out that in the current circumstances, you need to run a communist socialist style government in a country which hasn't had to do that since World War II when you're considering the supply chain issues that we're facing um, trying to get PPE and ventilators across the country. Um, so what role do you see those respective sectors playing with regard to the response? How much is public? How much is private? I know that's a big question but well, so I think we had all worked on it together. I think maybe, I don't know that I would use a communist uh, analogy, but I think you do have to have a bit more command and control from the, from the, the federal government, uh, especially when it comes to manufacturing. But we've done this in wartime before. World War II, uh, companies that were making uh, autom private automobiles switched over to making tanks and armored vehicles and, and uh, warplanes. And so uh, it's, it's not uncommon for a, for a, a democracy uh, that believes in capitalism for people to rally around the country to solve <coughs> some of these challenges by uh, working together uh, in, the, in the supply chain, as you, as you use as an example. Yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting conversation, particularly um, with regard to balancing different interests, um, making sure that we do utilize our supply chain, but also protecting what makes America America and that personal liberty and, and our freedoms are very important to us. Um, so, I mean, it is a really complex issue. Um, so do you think that without any state intervention that we could have weathered the storm um, from what's going on? I mean, in some ways, I, I think Governor Lee has already sort of answered that question with his enforceable yeah. order. I, I think, that, so this is a, a, a very unique situation. We've had pandemics before, but I don't know that we've had one that's had the impact that this one has had. And in this particular case, I don't think that there was any way that we could have solved for this problem without strong uh, county, city, state, and federal leadership. Um, mm -hmm easy and businesses can't uh, individually say well we're going to close down and expect everybody else to to do that as well so I think it did take some some strong intervention at the at the state and, and federal and, and, and again city and county levels to pull this off yeah and I would I would also think say that it's important to recognize that I think some of these actions have been rather draconian, but they've also had a lot of public support. Um, our communities understand the level to which we do need to protect those most vulnerable and that that 
distribution of who is at risk is, is not the same across um, different demographics. Um, and let's just go back to that World War II example again and thinking about the things that we're going through and then thinking about what was what's called the or is still called the, the greatest generation, the, the people that men and women that led America during uh, uh, the 1940s uh, to 1950. And they, they uh, were involved with World War II. We had over half a million people, Americans died. We had over 20 million people in Europe die during that war. Um, cities, sometimes complete countries were turned to rubble. Uh, so as I think about the challenge that we have today, being forced to stay at home, um, yeah, it's sometimes um, you feel isolated. It's, it could be um, uh, difficult and not fun, but nobody's dropping bombs on our heads. When we leave this in four or five weeks, we'll come back to uh, cities that are intact, uh, infrastructure that's intact. And for the most part, most of our family and friends will be, uh, have survived us. Uh, and so I think um, in, in comparison to some of the other great challenges, I think we're, we're uh, going to come through this one uh, just fine. I think, again, it's a challenge, but it's something that, that I think the people have risen up to, uh, to live through. And I also am also optimistic that our economy is going to bounce back very fast. The fundamentals were strong before, and I think they'll, they'll, um, that, that will come back as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the chairman of the, the Fed has, has been pretty optimistic about the prospects looking forward. Um, to your other point, it sort of reminds me um, or makes me think about the AIDS epidemic. And at that period in time, a lot of people, we didn't have medical care and we didn't have the capacity to treat people. Um, and today we have I mean, medical capacity has just been vastly increased. The things that we can do to save lives are way greater. And now we're just asking people to stay home um, relative to the AIDS epidemic where, you know, there was no stopping it. Um, we didn't have what we have today. And so I think that's a great point looking back to history to say that it, it is a small sacrifice in the long run um, if it means protecting those who are most vulnerable. Um, so to play off a little bit more of, of moving forward with the coronavirus epidemic, um, from your experience in both worlds, how do you feel, how do you balance the reopening of the economy? I know that's a big issue, and I know that universities are going to have a big role in providing research to make sure that we're doing that at the right time. Um, a recent paper uh, from a former White House economist has shown preliminary, we don't know much, but that there might be a lot of benefit to continuing these policies um, into the summer, um, hopefully not any longer than that. Um, but how do you weigh those costs, especially given your experience in both worlds um, and how they play together? Well, from the university's point of view, we're going to follow CDC guidelines and what the state of Tennessee recommends. And so we're not, we're not going to make any decisions on when to reopen the economy. We'll be, sure. we'll be paying attention to what the CDC guidelines in the state say with regards to public spaces and how that impacts us as a university. Um, but I think that um, the people that will be looking at this uh, will be looking at probably a, a staged recovery. I don't think it's, it's an all or nothing that we all go back to normal because we won't go back to normal at least for quite some time. We have to have some of the antibodies and other research that we're working on catch up to, to, the, to where, we're, where we need it to be. But in the interim, we do have a big part of our population or a part of our population 
that is more at risk and more vulnerable. We've got to make sure that we find ways to restart the economy while protecting those, those, those people. You know, the, the idea behind the stay at home wasn't to prevent everybody from getting the virus. It was just to make sure that our hospitals had the ability to take on and serve the people when they, when they did get the virus. And I think over this last four weeks, six weeks, we've been able to uh, dramatically build up our, our resources, especially here in the state of Tennessee. I don't know about every other state, but in the state of Tennessee, we've dramatically increased our, our ability to, to take on a surge. But at the same time, we've reduced the likelihood of a really a big surge. So I think we've put ourselves in a really good position to be able to, to gradually start reopening the economy. For sure, especially with, we were pretty proactive with putting in those, those intervention measures. Um, and that sort of plays into this next point. So more broadly, um, and especially since you were someone who has worked in the field of policy creation, and now you're kind of on the flip side of that, of, of the research side, supporting a university, um, what role do you feel like science and universities have in helping inform these policy-making decisions? And what are the challenges of integrating those scientific perspectives into the policy-making process? I think our universities, along with other universities around the country, have been taking a leading role in providing insights to the policymakers. We don't get to make the policy, but we can provide them the data that they need. Here at UT Knoxville, um, the Baker Center for Public Policy has created a site called Core 19. Um, that has a whole series of briefings on the economic impact of staying in place versus the cost of, uh, of the of resurgence and looking at uh, in a very uh, uh, scientific way what what is the uh, the, 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 the trade-off between um, uh, reopening the economy and, and maybe reopening it too soon. Uh, we have the Health Science Center in Memphis that's doing a lot of great research around actually finding antibodies. We have one of the uh, regional bio uh, uh, biomedical lab, one of only six in the country that actually has COVID-19 virus. We've got great researchers there working around the clock trying to come up with uh, solutions to help us uh, provide uh, immunization and uh, uh, remediation for the virus. And so I think from a policy point of view, from a solutions point of view, the University of Tennessee and other universities around the country are going to take a leading role. Absolutely. I've been fortunate enough to be a part of our Core 19 team here at the university, oh, so great. I've gotten to do some good research there and, and be around some really, really great people. Um, so to piggyback off of that, are, are there any ways that we as a university can do a better job of making sure that information gets to the policymaking side? Sometimes it feels yeah. like there's but a thank, disconnect there. You know, thank you for asking that question, Hanson. It's something that uh, Chancellor Plum and I have talked a lot about, uh, along with our government relations team uh, and some other policy leaders at the state level. So I think the Baker Center that uh, Dr. Uh, Murray leads uh, has done a great job uh, so far with the resources they've had. But I'd like to give them a look at giving them additional resources to do even more. So for the first point, we do have a lot of great people that are doing a lot of great work around policy, but wouldn't it be interesting if we went to the state and to our government leaders and said, uh, rather than us doing research around policy that is interesting to us, maybe you tell us what your greatest needs are. Where are the gaps that we could help you uh, mm -hmm. research around? An example could be around addiction and um, opioid use. Um, we have communities like Knox County, I'm on this task force, 
that's doing a lot of thought around how they're going to react. But then just to our north, there's uh, counties like Campbell County, which is the most uh, decimated by opioids county in the entire country. They don't have the, the resources to be able to put together a similar task force. Wouldn't it be great if the Baker Center actually created that policy and then disseminated it across the state? There's another organization, part of the University of Tennessee system called uh, Institute of Public Service. They have something called MTAS and CTAS that train literally every single city and county leader all across the state. What if those groups could take that information that the Baker Center is developing, that policy, and rather than just putting it on a website and hoping somebody learns it or finds it, maybe the, the folks at IPS actually take this out and train every city and county leader on key things that's relevant to them. So I think there's an opportunity for us to do even more things across the state and be, be the leader for policy uh, development, the leader for policy dissemination. I absolutely agree. And I, I think that is the primary um, concern right now, I think, is just making sure that we're working together in a way that's efficient. Um, there does feel to be some type of gap there, um, particularly with the state legislature. I, I mean, the, the student body and the state legislature have had their things in the past, but ultimately this is should be and could be a very fruitful relationship. Um, the university has a lot to offer and um, the government has a lot to offer back in return. So I really appreciate that um, perspective because I do think that that's an important part of what we're doing. Um, I, think, I think our relationship with the legislature has changed pretty dramatically over the last 14, 15 months. Uh, and they are not only supportive, but are looking to us for leadership in key areas. Now it's up to us to step up and fill that, fill that, uh, that need and that opportunity. Absolutely. Um, so to transition away from, from coronavirus for a little bit, um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, your, just your experience running as um, for governor in Tennessee. What just generally, what is it like being a candidate in a major campaign um, that was pretty hotly contested? Yeah, it's kind of funny. Um, I've had quite a few people that will introduce me uh, as, well, Randy Boyd, uh, former gubernatorial candidate, and I'm thinking, you know what, successful businessman, special advisor to higher education, chairman of the Higher Education Commission, of all the things you could pick, to introduce, <laughs> why do you pick the one thing you felt miserable at? Uh, but you know, it was a great learning experience and I can't change it, so I might as well embrace the things that I learned from it. I'd say uh, on the positive side, uh, you get a deep understanding of, of a broader range of policies in the process of campaigning for governor than you could possibly ever imagine. Issues that I really maybe wasn't that passionate about, I had to know about. You know, what was going to be my policy on solving con uh, traffic congestion in Nashville or about statues in, in Memphis or you name it, a range of different issues that you had to be versed in. And the thing you learn is that no matter what position you take on any issue, there's going to be a group of people that are going to be opposed to it. So you get a, you're never going to come up with the right answer. You yes. optimize your answer. Um, and the best part, though, I think, was just going around and getting to know the people of Tennessee. I traveled tirelessly, 14, 16-hour days, meeting hundreds of people every single day in every single corner of the state. And getting to know them will be the, the greatest thing that I take from that experience. Not only do I learn, I did I learn about the state, but I also get to know so many people that will be my friends, I think, forever. Um, I think in this new job and, and running the University of Tennessee, we're here to serve the people of Tennessee. You can't serve the people, but you can't know how to serve the people that you're supposed to serve if you don't know them, if you don't listen to them. 
and have mm-hmm. experience has given me a great perspective on how University of Tennessee can better serve the people of Tennessee. Mm-hmm, for sure. Um, I guess another question to piggyback off of that is, um, I mean, it was a very publicized campaign. There was a lot of people in the race. Um, to what extent did you feel the pressure of national politics trying to sort of intervene in what the campaign you envisioned you wanted to run? I mean, because that's sort of a fact of life. You, you, there's a lot of different interests and there's always going to be people throwing things your way and, and trying to maybe nudge you to a different position. What was your experience like? Um, because yeah, you, you know, that, that's why I, I think I understand the question. If I do, I think the um, things that were frustrating about the campaign were that you couldn't really talk about the things that I felt was the most important for people of Tennessee as the governor of Tennessee. The governor of Tennessee works on workforce. I bring jobs to our state. I help develop the workforce by supporting education initiatives, making sure we have the right infrastructure and the tax uh, structure in place to be able to encourage the kind of investments that we needed to grow the state. I understood those things, I think, fairly well. I thought it could make a difference there. However, uh, when you get off the bus and, and you name a city across the state, the first thing they want to know is, tell me how do you feel about the wall? Tell me, do you support the president? And I said, well, here's my answer to that. But by the way, as the, as the governor of Tennessee, we don't have a wall. I, I, I don't have a choice in that. But unfortunately, the national conversation has replaced, uh, unfortunately, the, the local conversation for many people. Most people aren't watching their local news and reading their local paper anymore. They're watching Fox and CNN. And they're talking about national issues. So as you travel the state, I talked with a, a candidate for mayor uh, recently that lost. And he also was frustrated by the same thing. So people weren't wanting to talk about potholes and community development and the things that matter in the city that the mayor actually has a role in. They were only focused on these national issues. So the, uh, I think it's a change in the way we consume news is also a big part of it. And also having a very um, uh, uh, bipartisan or, or very partisan uh, politics at the national level that it's, it's really hard to, to at the, at the local and the state level on the, it, on the issues that matter to citizen, citizens during a campaign. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because word for word on my, my last episode with Dr. Wanamaker, she was like, this is a problem about how we consume news. Just turn it off, um, yeah. at least the national news. Um, so, I mean, what's the solution to that? I mean, it, it's clearly an issue because the national politics has become increasingly partisan in the last 10 years. I worry about young people who have come of age in this time period where we have not seen a lot of bipartisan cooperation and collaboration. It's sort of like faux pas to to be that way. And so, I mean, what is the solution to that? Um, And that's also a big question, but an important one. Back to defaulting to being an optimist, because it, it would be really easy to, to uh, give up. But I think you are the solution. The Baker Center is the solution. You know, Howard Baker used to always uh, talk about how it was great to sit down with somebody with a different point of view, just in case they might be right. And uh, I think we need more of that. And so the future uh, depends on future leaders. We need leadership that's bold, that's willing to, to be civil, that's willing to talk to other people. We're going to have to take it. It'll start with a few people. And I'm hopeful that it will then build. 
but it's going to start with people. It's going to start with people that are willing to step up to be the right kind of leader. And I'm hopeful that our next generation will be able to do a better job than maybe our current generation has done in that. I'm hopeful as well. Um, so we're going to move on to the questions from listeners. So these can be short answers, um, but yeah. these are from people who have submitted questions to me. Um, so quickly, what would you tell entrepreneurs who are trying to navigate the coronavirus waters? I just can keep finding ways to be persistent and, and move, move forward. You know, I have uh, a son that's uh, two sons that are both in, in business. They're, they're still finding ways to uh, move things forward as best they can, but just don't give up. Uh, and one thing too that you hear a lot is that uh, in every crisis there's opportunity. So be looking for what opportunities there might be uh, that this crisis has, has created. And there will be a lot. You know? And so it, the, those that um, capitalize on them will be the ones that are looking for them. Mm -hmm. um, so the next question is, there's been a lot of concern about Zoom's as a company, their encryption standards, data sharing, routing, vulnerabilities. Um, and one listener would like to know what your thoughts are about the university's usage of Zoom and is your just general opinion on that. Yeah, no, I think both the company Zoom and the university and everybody that's using it are learning at a very fast rate. I know the, the company is Zoom is working on new safety protocols. We as a university are also looking at ways in which we can uh, make sure that our use of it is more secure. There's some very simple things that we can do to help Im improve that. And Zoom may not be the, the provider going forward in the future. I think a lot of our online education um, that we're offering right now is really taking what we would normally do in person and just putting it on Zoom. There's so many other technologies that we could use that can make it mm -hmm. easier and better. So uh, I think we can continue to use Zoom. It'll continue to improve, but we're also going to find other uh, modalities that can provide uh, content even better than Zoom. Mm -hmm. um, and the last question from a listener is, what role do you see UT playing in the progression of Tennessee and the U.S. in the next few years, and is a top 25 university a predominant priority? You know, so when we talk about the top 25, that's a U.S. News and World Report ranking, and there's a lot of things I don't really like about the ranking. One of the things that they they rank you on is your exclusivity, your selectivity, how many students mm -hmm. you, back to the land grant mission. We don't want to be known for as a university that uh, excludes people. We want to be known as one that includes people. And so I don't really worry about U.S. News and World Report, but I do want to make this the greatest decade in the history of the University of Tennessee. 225 years, we've got a lot of incredible decades in the past. My, the 1960s, if you're wondering, is the one that I would pick as number one under Andrew Hope. Um, we have got a lot of opportunity going forward over this next decade to make this the greatest decade. We're gonna lead by making us the most accessible university in the country through th programs like the UT Promise. We're gonna create new research and, and have some of the best, we've got a new pro uh, project going on called the Oak Ridge Institute. It'll be the biggest science project in the history of the, uh, the state of Tennessee since uh, the Manhattan Project. And as we talked about, maybe using um, uh, assets like the Baker Center, we're gonna find new and, and, and better ways to be more impactful to the people of the state of Tennessee. So I'm excited about the future, and I'm excited about uh, where, where we're going, and I'm excited about making this truly the greatest decade in the history of the University of Tennessee. Tennessee is certainly at the forefront right now. Um, so the last little section, do a little bit of rapid fire questions, so just okay. quick answers. Um, what's your favorite quarantine activity thus far? Oh, I'd say having, having 
breakfast, lunch, and dinner with my wife. I don't get to do that normally. Probably a good one. Um, and there's a right answer to this one. Texting or talking? Uh, as an activity, I would rather talk than text. That's the correct answer. <laughs> okay. um, what's, what's the most embarrassing moment you've had as the UT system president so far? Oh, gosh, that's a hard question. The most embarrassing moment. Hmm. I'm not so sure. I, 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 nothing comes to mind, so I, I couldn't tell you. I might have to follow up with you on that one. Okay, you're welcome <laughs> to. I'm, I'm sure there's plenty of them. I just getting this, nothing pops in my head at the moment. <laughs> um, and then the last question, what's the best book you've read recently? I just got through reading uh, Leadership in a Crisis by Doris Kearns Goodwin. It seemed like the right book to read at the right time. And she writes about uh, Theodore Roosevelt solving the, the coal uh, and uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt solving the depression and uh, Abraham Lincoln in the Civil War and Lyndon Johnson creating the Great Society. And all the challenges they had in each of those situations was a perfect uh, uh, instruction for how we're dealing with the crisis that we're doing, dealing with now. I certainly agree. I, I'm a big advocate of looking back to history to find a place to put every moment that, that is in our future. Um, so with that, we're coming to a close. Um, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. And with that, I want to leave. Is there anything you want to say to students and, and Tennesseans about the moment we find ourselves in just more generally? Yes. I think first and foremost, stay safe, stay healthy. That's what we all have to do to get through this. But stay focused on our mission as a land grant university, as a student, completing your courses, completing your degree. Um, we will get through this. We'll get through this together. And I look forward to seeing everybody on a campus one day in the very near future. Awesome. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Hanson. Appreciate you having me. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, you. Thank you for tuning in to As It Stands. As It Stands is brought to you by The Daily Beacon, the editorial independent student newspaper at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and your host, me, Hanson Sale. A special thanks to Evan Newell, Austin Orr, the Howard H. Baker Center for Public Policy, and the Coronavirus-19 Outbreak Response Experts Team at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. For up-to-date information about COVID-19 and its impact on Tennessee, visit core19.utk.edu. I hope you enjoy the show. Remember to read widely, practice social distancing, and join me for the next episode of As It Stands. I hope you have a great week and see you then.